As Bill said earlier, we're going to continue in our series that we began last week, uh, which is in the book of Revelation. We're in chapters 2 and 3 looking at seven letters that Jesus wrote to seven churches, which, as we heard last week as we introduced the series, is a perfect representation of all churches for all time. And so this is God's word to us today, very much for us and uh, hopefully increasingly so. So turn to Revelation 2 this morning, verses 8 through 11. And if you didn't bring a Bible, uh, we do have one for you. It's a gift. Get it at the Welcome Center. Uh, But we also always put the words on the screen as well so you can follow along. A little story for you. I love uh, starting with a bit of a story usually. So um, Marcy and I got married in May of 1990. We're coming up on 30 years this year. And uh, what a blessing from God in our lives. I have uh, an amazing woman and an amazing marriage uh, that God put together. And, uh, and so pray for us too in that, that it would just uh, stay that way. But I'm, I'm so happy um, for our marriage. And we've known each other for 34 years, I think, all together. Married almost 30. And uh, on our honeymoon, we were blessed with some, some gifts and, uh, some, and a really good travel agent who got us a, a really good price on a honeymoon to Florida. And you know what? I had never, I was a small town Saskatchewan boy, always have to throw that in. I had never been on a large airplane in my life, ever. So um, we had a friend, actually one of our neighbors had a friend who had a small airplane, and I went up, up in it a couple of times, once or twice. But that, is the, that was the extent of my air travel. I had never been on a jet airplane in my life, and I was a little overwhelmed, to say the least. And Marcy can attest to the fact that from the moment I sat in my seat until we were well into the air, I did not relax, and I was gripping those armrests like you'd never seen. In fact, she she, uh, at one point reached over to hold my hand, and she quickly let go because it was dripping wet (laughs) with sweat. I couldn't believe that a machine could have that much power and suck you into your seat and get you in the air that fast. Uh, But that was uh, an exhilarating yet scary experience for me. Um, I don't know what makes your palms sweat, but for me, it it was and still is a little bit uh, air travel. I'm not the most comfortable with it. I don't mind it, but it's not my a joy for me. Uh, What makes your palms sweat? What do you? What's a source of anxiety or fear for you? Uh, For some of you, it might be uh, public speaking, doing what I'm doing right now. You wouldn't be caught dead up here. You can have it. Thank you very much. Uh, That's a common one. Um, Arachnophobia. The fear of spiders or maybe creepy things like snakes. A lot of people have fears of that. A lot of people have a fear of heights. So the egg hall has this uh, really old scaffolding that's kind of rickety and it's on wheels. It works great. I don't mind it too much. But I tell you, when you're up there, I don't know. How high is this roof? Doug, you're a contractor. What is this about? 30? 25? About 20 feet to the very top. So when we get to these beams here, Uh, is when my uh, palms start to sweat just a bit (laughs) on the scaffolding, right? And I've been up there in the last six years quite a few times helping with this stuff, right? Like lighting and projector and running wires and you name it, uh, doing different setup things. Uh, Speaking of which, there's a a documentary, I haven't seen it, but Pastor Jason made reference uh, to it last week when he preached this passage. It's called Free Solo. Anybody ever heard this? The story of Alex uh, Hanold. Uh, I've actually, I, I heard about it back when he, in, in 2017, June. So this summer, three years ago, he climbed El Capitan. It is a uh, 3,000 foot granite slab, which is pretty much straight up. In fact, I think at times there's a reverse incline. And so uh, 3,000, so the 20 feet, <laughs> multiply that by whatever it is, 15, you know, like, Woo, that's way up there. And uh, he, he climbs free solo. That means without the aid of any ropes or anything. He solos it free. So apparently for the first like three, four hundred feet, uh, there's a crack in this huge slab of granite, El Capitan, that uh, is enough for you to put in kind of your wrist and the small part of your arm, and you have to jam it in there, and your foot, and you climb that way for the first 300 feet, there's nothing else to grab onto. Then from there, there's like little things that you can grab onto, and then you hit uh, the crux of the problem at 2,300 feet. You're still 700 to the top, but at that point, 
There literally is only two places for you to hang on. And you have to stretch out so that you're just the tips of your toes are on one little piece of the rock and half of your thumb is on the other and the pressure of those two is enough to hold you there. <laughs> Anybody got sweaty palms yet? I'm, I'm, I'm sweating just thinking about this. 2,300 feet and you're, you're there by the tip of your toes and half of your thumb. It gets better. In order to continue climbing, you have to switch hands at that point. And, and like he, he, he knew the route well ahead of time before and when they filmed it, there's drones and everything happening. So like it's, it's well documented apparently. I gotta see this now. He literally had to, at, a, at the precise moment, switch hands so that he could use that hand to continue climbing. And as, as, if my memory serves me correctly, he did the whole thing in record time, free solo. Uh, that gives me very sweaty palms, even just thinking about it. In preparing for this, I was sitting there going through the introduction to my sermon and I found my hands getting wet. They, they are even now. Does the thought of suffering for Jesus, being persecuted and going through tribulation for the sake of the gospel, for the name of Christ, does that give us sweaty palms? What does that do to us when we think about it? I think maybe it did for the church at Smyrna that we're going to read about today, one of these seven churches in Revelation, and that's why Jesus wrote this letter. It is interesting we began last week with Ephesus. It's interesting that to this church, they're both in the same region, very close to one another, that there's no criticism and there's no condemnation. There's no rebuke, like there was last week. There was only commendation and command. This was a church that was enduring persecution and suffering, and they needed to be girded up. Maybe some sweaty palms happening knowing what they were facing and were about to face for the name of, in the name of Christ, for the name of Christ and, and for the gospel. So let's learn from this church uh, at Smyrna today because um, my hands get sweaty at the prospect of what they faced and my hands get a little sweaty at the prospect, I think, of what we Christians in the church will face in the future, even in our own nation. I, I believe that. We're, we're, not a, we're no longer a Christian nation. We're very much a post-Christian nation. We're very much a nation where there is uh, already significant opposition to the gospel and to uh, the church in what we can and cannot say, what we can and cannot counsel people and do. And, and so the opposition and the tribulation, I believe, is going to come in greater ways. So let's, let's look at the text, Revelation chapter 2, uh, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, we talked last week about what angel means, so we're not going to get into that again. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. It is significant that Jesus begins this way. Very significant. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Whew, that's heavy. That's an El Capitan. This is a 3,000-foot climb here this morning, folks. But we don't think about this much, do we? Uh, suffering and tribulation because of our faith. But this morning from this text, I want us to hear three things. What is Christ's assessment of the situation and maybe his assessment of our situation? What is his command to this church and to us? And what is, what is his answer to this? His assessment, his command, and his answer to suffering caused by tribulation and how this might apply. So first of all, Christ's assessment. As I said, Smyrna is in the region of modern-day Izmir, Turkey. Uh, I said Ephesus was in the same region yesterday. Izmir is a large place, but Smyrna and Ephesus, these two churches were about 40 kilometers apart from one another, very close geographically. Very, very interesting that Smyrna, 
a church in Turkey is a church that still exists and is thriving today. I think that's noteworthy. I think that's extremely important, actually, given uh, what Jesus wrote to them, that he had no rebuke for them, but only commendation and a command as well. They were a faithful church. Now, they competed with Ephesus as, uh, at one time as to, be, to become the beauty of Rome. Uh, they, they actually, at one time, I think, wanted to become like Rome, but when Rome rose to importance and significance, they were competing, actually, for the, who would be the greatest support and the greatest beauty of Rome, a Roman colony, you know, that would shine and stand out. Apparently, uh, Smyrna was destroyed in about 400 B.C., but was resurrected and planned to be this stunning city in direct competition with Rome. But they were the first to support Rome before Rome was the power of the day. And as a result, Smyrna had developed some privileges in their relationship with Rome. They were awarded the right to build a temple in Caesar's honor for worship. So now you have a temple built in the honor of Caesar for the worship of the Roman emperor. They lived in some pretty interesting cultural times. Uh, and so around them, not only this temple to Caesar, but other pagan temples, of course, that were all over the place. Uh, there was the Jewish synagogues, of course. And then now you have the early beginnings of the Christian church. And so there was turmoil uh, in the church in Smyrna because of the conflict over worship, obviously. So you see a number of realities that come out of that, and this is Christ's assessment of what's going on here. I'm going to talk about three realities. There's a physical reality to tribulation and suffering. There's a spiritual reality, and then there's an expected reality. We're going to talk through all three. First, a physical reality. So there's this reality here of competition between, of, of worship or of conflict in worship, particularly, particularly between the Jews and the Christians and opposition from the Romans. So there was a, literally the worship of the Roman emperor, and the Jews were granted an exception because Rome was interested in keeping the peace at that time, and they didn't want trouble. So the Jewish people said, look, what if we sacrifice to our God, but we do it on behalf of Caesar? <laughs> it was sort of like, a, you know... Uh, what do you call it, massaging the, the you know, kind of getting through the red tape a little bit, uh, a way around it. We can always find ways around things, can't we, when we want to. Not faithful, though. So let's sacrifice to our God on behalf of Caesar. So Rome said, okay, it was granted to you. That way they could do their civil duty while not betraying their religious requirements of worshiping only one God. They compromised. But then along come these uh, Christians, these pesky little Christians, known as affiliated, known to the Romans as affiliated to the Jews, but to them they were known as atheists because they didn't believe in the God of the Roman choosing or the Jewish choosing. And they would not, these Christians, sacrifice to the emperor or for the emperor. For them, there was no compromise. This created a lot of tension, obviously, between the Christians and the Jews and the Romans because the Jews and the Romans wanted to live in peace. I think the Christians did too, but whenever we say no compromise, there's trouble. All right? We won't sacrifice to Caesar. We have only one king, one ruler, and his name is Jesus. He is the Lord Jesus. So there's this differentiation right away. The Jews began to separate themselves very quickly from the Christians. Remember, a lot of the Christians came out of Judaism. They also came out of paganism. And there was this blending of Jew and Gentile. But the Jews very quickly began to separate themselves from Christians and they began to slander them because they wanted the perks. They wanted peace and safety and they didn't want anything to do with the Christians, resulting in significant persecution from the Jews and the Romans alike. In fact, Polycarp, if that name rings a bell for you in Christian history, Roman history, Polycarp was the bishop here in Smyrna. He died in 155 AD uh, by being burned at the stake. He paid the ultimate price for no compromise as the leader of that church. This was the first documented killing of a Christian outside of the Bible. 155, Polycarp. 
So let's go to the text again. Revelation 2, 9 and 10, it's going to be up on the screen again, and it says this. I know your tribulation. I'm going to pick up some keywords. First of all, tribulation. And your poverty, another keyword, circle that one. But you are rich. And the slander, circle that one, of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Wow, those are strong words. Uh, note that the Apostle John here was not anti-Semitic. <laughs> he didn't have anything against the Jewish people. He had, what he had against them was their compromise and their sin. Not the fact that they were Jewish. There's a big difference. And he calls their places of worship as a result of that synagogues of Satan. Made me think this week, what if we called sin satanic? What if we called it for what it really is? Compromise. Sin in our lives is following the Lord and the Master and the King of Darkness, not the King of Light or the Kingdom of God, which is Jesus. Satanic. That's what sin is. Let's carry on. John said, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, 10 days has significance. It's not a, a literal 10 days. 10 days means a, com a, a, a completion of your suffering for what it's supposed to produce. Uh, um, fore forecasted or foreshadowed uh, really in Daniel, his testing of 10 days, literally. Uh, that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. There's that word again, tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give to you the crown of life. Tribulation, the word means pressure. Uh, it is like a big boulder being rolled over you. Crushing. Not a good experience. I don't know if anybody's having a boulder rolled over them, but maybe you're not going to come out in the best shape. I don't know. I've never had a boulder rolled over me, but it's called pressure. That's what this word means. It's a physical reality, a weight upon your life physically. These people were, were, were uh, shunned. Uh, they do not associate with those Christians. So there was a social weight. There was an economic weight. Um, uh, John says here, I know your tribulation and your poverty. We're going to talk about that. There was an economic weight. You see, when you're slandered in the community and you're shunned, it's pretty hard to conduct business. Think about it. I mean, if you're a contractor in the area and somebody is shunning you and slandering you, <laughs> it's going to be hard to put bread on the table. Uh, they literally were imprisoned, so physical. They were arrested. And back in that day, when you were arrested, the authorities took what you had. They threw you in jail and, their, and your stuff was now theirs. So, let's move on to poverty. When it says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, uh, it's not poverty that we think about in terms of poverty. There's plenty of people who live in poverty today in Canada. Lots, actually. And that means that they are down to the bare minimum. This is beyond that. This means that they had nothing. Not, there was no assistance. And Jesus said, I know that you have nothing. I know it, that you are under pressure, a kind of pressure that we know nothing about here. And yet, what does he say? You are rich. Isn't that amazing? If, if we go a little bit further in, uh, in Ephesians here, or sorry, um, I was thinking Church of Ephesus, in Revelation uh, into chapter three, and I don't want to like spoil too much, but a little bit of a spoiler alert here for the church at Laodicea. Jesus says to them, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to it to anoint your eyes so that you may see. This is challenging, friends. This is challenging to me because when we put riches, poverty and riches into this kind of perspective, it, it, it really hits close to home. And I had to think to myself, what's more important? What's more valuable? Uh, gold 
from the earth or gold from Jesus? Hebrews chapter 10 verse 34 says this. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Friends, that's gold from Jesus. And they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property because they knew they're not taking it with them. <laughs> the next life has streets paved with gold. Let's talk about slander, accused of things that they never did and their suffering. Um, Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 through 12, Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you and falsely on my account. They're slandering you. Blessed are you in that. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed, rejoice, be glad when you're slandered because of Jesus. Has anyone here ever been slandered because they're a follower of Christ? Just for being a follower of Christ. There's a, there's a few. I, ha I have two. I'm not going to take the time to tell the story. I always tell people, if you want to hear a story that I make reference to, but I don't have time to tell, you just have to buy me a coffee. <laughs> or at lunch. I'm always up for that. Or down for that. Whatever. Yeah, no, I was uh, uh, slandered pretty bad in a public meeting one time. Uh, Strata special general meeting, hello. <laughs> Nonetheless, it wasn't just me, but my church, my profession, everything was dragged into it in front of every owner in our complex. It was, it was fun times. Threatened with a lawsuit the whole nine yards. Because I, I stood up for what was right. It, to me, it was a matter of integrity, and somebody got pretty riled up. Okay, back to this. So there's a physical reality to calling Christ Lord. There's tribulation, poverty, slander. But there's also a spiritual reality, and in many ways, this is the more real reality. So there's the physical than the spiritual. Verse 10, look at verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Not Rome, not the Jews. The devil is going to throw some of you into prison. Tribulation, friends, is a spiritual reality. In a spiritual arena where social and political lob lobbying and maneuvering and, and all of that kind of stuff, it makes no difference. Uh, Reverend Richard Halverson, who was actually a U.S. senator, said this one time in Senate. He said, No adequate understanding of history can be had without taking into account the fact that behind and around and through history, a personal, diabol diabolical, satanic, spiritual force is bent on destroying all good and its author, Jesus Christ. That guy had guts to say that in Senate. So last week, uh, when, we, when I was talking about uh, Revelation being a apocalyptic literature, uh, it has a number of characteristics. One of them is that it's dualistic. So Daryl Johnson, I quoted from last week in his book, Discipleship on the Edge, he said this, Revelation, or apoc apocalyptic literature, I always struggle with that word, um, it seeks to set the present day in light of the unseen realities of the future. In other words, it helps us make decisions today in light of what's to come. That's part of a revelation. Uh, an unveiling, apocalyptic literature. But, uh, wrote Johnson in, in the same book, revelation or apocalyptic literature also seeks to set the present day in light of the invisible realities of the present, meaning it tears off the veil of a very present spiritual realm and allows us to see into that realm, allows us to see to the other side of the physical into the spiritual. And Jesus affirms this here, that tribulation, suffering, is a spiritual issue. It certainly is a physical one, but it crosses that realm, and the more real realm is the spiritual one. Paul affirms this. He echoes Jesus, Ephesians 6. Many of us know this well. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, 
and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, in the heavenly places. The gospel is a spiritual enterprise, friends, and we must engage it at that level. There is a conflict between the kingdom of darkness and the Lord of it and the kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus of it, the king, the master. And the rulers of darkness will try and are trying always to do all that they can and Satan all that he can to thwart, disturb, disrupt, intercept, stop the plans and purposes of God. He always has and he always will. Do you believe that? You see, the pressure that you face at work maybe, or at school, or with your friends, where you have to decide, okay, am I going to speak up or stand up for Jesus or remain quiet? (laughs) Trust me, that's a struggle for me too. Where you have to decide, will I hold God's moral standard of the way he says I should live or acquiesce to the world's standards, the pressure you feel to hold your marriage, your family together as a Christian parent, as a Christian spouse. These aren't merely social or physical dilemmas or awkwardness, they are spiritual. And as such, we must fight. We must fight for them. One of the verses, actually, I forgot Josh and Krissa to to share with you before I prayed was this. And I think maybe it was the Lord's timing for me not to share it then, but to share it now. So this is for you, but it's also for all of us. Nehemiah 4, verse 14. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Fight for them. And that fight, brothers and sisters, is fought in the spiritual places, in the spiritual realms. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Do you have conflict today with a brother or a sister? Literally, or in the church, or with one of your kids, or with your spouse, and you're fighting? It's easy for me to say, but we need to stop that fight and fight the real fight. It's a spiritual fight. And so we need to pray for our kids, for our spouses, for our church, for our community, for our brothers and sisters, and engage at that level. In John 10, verse 10, Jesus said, the enemy comes to steal and kill and destroy. Do you believe that? That that we have a real enemy whose only purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. Like that calls for warfare. You, You don't... You don't go into war knowing that your enemy is trying to destroy you and not defend yourself and strategize and do all you can. Broken relationships, church conflicts, discouragement, rebellious and and wayward children, failing marriages, debt and financial strain, all manner of things are, yes, they're physical realities, but they're spiritual realities too. And they manifest on a physical plane, but they're fought in the spiritual realm. So we need to pray, Lord, protect us, deliver us from the evil one, that we might seek your ways and have your blessing upon our lives. So physical, spiritual, but an expected reality. As frontline ambassadors for Jesus, we should expect tribulation and suffering. And because, you know, I just want to be really, really blunt with you you here for a minute. I I often think to myself, why do we not see more tribulation and suffering? Now, I'm not talking about suffering because of illness or cancer or, or those kind of things. I'm separating that right now from the suffering for the name, for the sake of the gospel and for Jesus. Very specific here. And I ask myself sometimes, why do we not see more of that suffering? Are we really on the front lines? It's a good question to ask. This past week, I got uh, John and Bonnie Esau's uh, newsletter by email. They're uh, our missionaries that we support in Thailand. 
John recently made a trip back to Canada with a church, a Thai church planter named Shalom. And they spent an entire morning with our staff at our Chilliwack campus a month and a half ago, whatever it was. And I would say 95% of what Shalom challenged us with and talked to us about for a good hour or two was all spiritual warfare. You see, they, they, uh, they have a very different perspective in Thailand. It's not only uh, expected that their struggle is on a spiritual level and plane, but it's anticipated and it's regularly confronted and it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense because in Matthew chapter 10, I think the verse is up there, verse 24 to 25, Jesus said, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. In other words, he's telling us that he's, uh, he's in charge. <laughs> We're not above him. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, which is devil, which they did accuse Jesus of on more than one occasion, if they did that to me, Jesus said, how much more will they malign those of his household? If we are part of the family of God and we are part of the kingdom of God, you and I can expect that we will be maligned and maliciously accused. Now, if you're thinking, well, this was just for the 12 disciples. I mean, Jesus wasn't talking to me. He was talking to Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and all these guys. Okay, think again. The apostle Paul wasn't one of the 12, but was called to be an apostle special by Jesus. Paul was on his way to kill Christians. He was, on, he was uttering murderous threats on them, and he went to arrest them, put them in jail, and give approval to their death. And on the, on the road to Damascus, when he was on one of these death missions, he was confronted by Jesus. He met Jesus, and he was instantly changed by Jesus, was blinded for a while because the light was so bright. When he met Jesus, he fell on his feet and said, who are you? And Jesus spoke to him, and Jesus at that time, he said, I'm going to, actually he said it through the person I think that laid hands on Paul that he would receive a sight back, but he said, Paul, uh, you need to show Paul just how much he's going to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Prepare him. And uh, trust me, Paul went through a lot of stuff. Read the book of Acts. He, he was put under the rock pile one stone at a time um, on more than one occasion. He was uh, beaten. He was whipped. He was involved in shipwrecks because he had to get to places in storms. He was put in prison numerous times. And to Timothy, his protege, he's preparing Timothy, verses on the screen, indeed, all... Paul wrote to Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Church, that's for us. This is Jesus' assessment. The bottom line, suffering is an expected physical and spiritual reality for the Christian. Uh, John White, who is a Canadian psychiatrist, said this, Satan's supreme objective is to hurt Christ and Christ's cause. You are personally of no interest to him. It is only as you relate to Christ that you assume significance in the enemy's eyes. I love that. So if Jesus' assessment uh, is that suffering is an expected physical, spiritual reality, then it makes sense that the closer you are to Christ, the more you will experience something that the great apostle Paul rejoiced in because he considered it himself to be worthy of Christ when he suffered. We don't talk about this very much, but I, friends, I think we need to. So what do we do with all this? So that's the assessment. What is Christ's command in all of this? What's Christ's command? <sighs> do not fear. That's it. So there's actually two things he's going to tell us to do here, but his first directive to us is do not be afraid. His, his command to us isn't to turn tail and run. It's not to pray and ask for deliverance from tribulation and suffering. It is to not be afraid. What? Like, it's not really the, 
It's not really the command from Jesus that I was hoping to read, right? Were you? It's like, don't be afraid. I mean, okay, Jesus, you did all of these things on earth while you were here. You walked on water. Uh, you raised people from the dead. You caused lame people to walk. You caused blind people to see. You calmed the storms with a word from your mouth. Couldn't you just please, like, just say the word and get me out of this bad situation? Isn't that our cry? God, God, take me out of it? But he says, no, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison. And here's the thing, that you may be tested. So this word tested means to be proved and improved. Um, anybody ever go to Ikea? Okay, so my wife loves that place. I love the hot dogs. Just saying. It's always about the food and other things. You can get a cheap breakfast there. My goodness. Breakfast with a coffee for like two bucks. Who wouldn't go? <sighs> Bill. Okay, so uh, I digress. Now, when you are walking through Ikea, have you ever been to that spot? You know those chairs that they have? They're like a little bit bouncy, and they don't have four legs. They just kind of have this curled thing, right? This wood. They're laminated wood that has spring to it. Anyway, they have this uh, something that presses on it, like maybe simulating your butt or whatever, and then it goes up and down and up and down, and it tells you how many thousands or millions of times this thing's gone up and down. You know what they're doing? They're testing that chair because they want to know how much it can withhold before it cracks. And they want to know that when you sit in, the, in that chair, it's not going to fail you when it matters. Right? When we are tested, it is to prove us. It's to pr Any product goes through testing to prove it and improve it. If it cracks, we make it better. And that's what, that's what uh, suffering does in our lives for the sake of Christ. It makes us aware of our idols, our weaknesses, our fracture and crack points, our vulnerabilities, our sin. And it also makes us aware of his greatness and our need for Christ. That's what suffering does. It proves us and it improves us. Uh, maybe another illustration you don't care about. I might strike out twice with you, Bill. But if you watch hockey... <laughs> Um, I kept my eye on the Canucks game last night, as per usual. And so they finished going into winter break. The All-Star game is this Saturday. Uh, number one in the Pacific Division. But only one point separates the top five teams. Every win matters now because it's a constant juggle from one to five. One point. San Jose Sharks in the bottom. They're 11 points in the bottom. And they played San Jose last night and they beat them 4-1, I think it was. And if you watch the game, the veterans, uh, Joe Thornton, some of these other guys that should know better, they started to crack. They were delivering cheap shots. They were uh, playing dirty because they were upset. And the commentators said, they're going through, what were the words, Adversity. Because here's a team that's used to winning. In the last 21 years, the San Jose Sharks have been in the playoffs 19 times. And they're not probably going to make it this year. And the cracks are showing. And they're losing their cool. Which makes their play even worse. And so... When these things come into our lives, Jesus wants to know what's there. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, 4, 17 to 18 says this, for this light momentary affliction, like <laughs> this light momentary affliction you guys are facing, <laughs> whatever the church in Corinth faced at that time, I mean, a lot of people were going through severe poverty and uh, tribulation because of their affiliation with Jesus this is like Paul's like, this is nothing. It's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. There's that spiritual reality. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are seen are eternal. So whatever you are going through today because of Jesus, even to the point of death, John said to, the angel said, Jesus said to this church of Thyatira, or Smyrna, 
He said, it pales in comparison to a greater knowledge and intimacy with Christ. And it certainly pales in comparison to the glory of eternity where we're going to see him face to face. Romans 5 tells us what suffering does. Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's our hope. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his blood and his righteousness affirmed in our lives through his spirit. Wow. This ought to bring us encouragement and courage in the face of fear. Read sometimes Acts chapter 4 when the church was expanding rapidly and the leaders, Peter and the early apostles, they were dragged in before the authorities and they were saying, please, no, they didn't use the word please. They said, stop talking about Jesus. Stop. And if you don't, you'll be arrested, you'll be put into prison for a longer period of time and we're going to beat you. They said, no go. We're going to keep talking. You can do whatever you want to us, but we're going to keep talking about Jesus. And so what did they do after that? Did they, did they, they called a meeting and they, they, they say, what's our strategy here? Should we pray that God would take us this away or that maybe those rulers who are threatening us would you know, come to Jesus? That would be good because then our persecution would stop. I mean, it's kind of a struggle. We want them to come to Jesus. But what did they do? In Acts 4, they said, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. Heal people. Do all these things Give us the boldness. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord, so that we can be faithful. The first command is do not be afraid, and the second one is to be faithful even to the point of death. Whether it be in prison, whether it be in old age as a believer, to be faithful to the point of death. How are we to be faithful? The pressures on you, kids, uh, most of them are, but we have some middle school kids and high school students here today. The pressures you face are enormous in the areas of sex and sexual identity and drugs and money and music and all of these things are huge. To be faithful to Jesus is to stand up for him in the midst of that. What about you and your work? Uh, you may be in a work environment or a school environment or whatever that is blatantly anti-Christian and hostile. Will you commit to live with integrity, to be faithful, to not accept that bribe, not to tweak the expense account, not to uh, treat others differently if it means getting uh, that promotion that you want so desperately? Will it mean maybe bypassing the promotion because it means that you're going to treat other people the way Jesus would want you to treat them? Easier said than done, but Christ is calling us to not be afraid, but to be faithful even to the point of death. So this Alex Honnold, uh, the free soloist, he said this in the documentary. Done a lot of thinking about fear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For me, the crucial question is not how to climb without fear. That's impossible. But how to deal with it when it creeps into your nerve endings. Because fear is a reality. And how do we deal with it? Let's end with Christ's answer, which is front-loaded in this text. Verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. That's it. That's the answer. Jesus said, the answer to all of this is me. <laughs> Look to me. It's the only way it's going to work because I know all things from the beginning to the end. Before any of you existed, before the creation of the world, I am. I know all things. I've seen it all. Not only did I raise the dead and calm the storms and make the lame walk and the blind see and all of that, but I was involved when... Pharaoh released the people out of Egypt. I was there. I was, oh, I was, when the foundations of the earth were put in place, I was there. I am the first and the last. Oh, and by the way, I died 
I suffered an unimaginable death. I died. Oh, but I didn't stay in the grave. I was raised to life. Look to me. I am the answer to this tribulation and to this suffering. I see it all. I know it all. This is again uh, what John, what Jesus through the angel says to this church. I know Jesus walks among us, the faithful churches, his lampstands, and he sees and he knows. He has all authority. And yes, Satan presses. And it feels like we're being rolled over by a boulder, but we will not be crushed. Jesus has won. He has defeated our enemy by making public, a public spectacle of him and putting him to shame at the cross. That's what Colossians 1 and 2 tells us. That he is preeminent. He is before all things. He's our creator. He has all authority. And Satan has been put in his place. And listen, what Jesus wanted his church to know in Revelation 2 is that the second death is the one to be afraid of. Not physical death, but spiritual death. But because Jesus died and was raised when we put our faith in him, we not need fear that death. And I want to ask you this morning, is Jesus your ruler? Is he your Lord? Is he your master? Do you have fear not just of death, but of the second death? Fear that no longer. Put your faith in Christ. Paul said in Romans 10, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he is the ruler over all these things and over my life, and I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. Paul said, you do that and you will be saved. I urge you this morning, do that. Declare Jesus as your Lord. Believe in your heart that as Lord, he not only came to this earth and lived a sinless life, but he died on your behalf and he didn't stay in the grave, but he was raised to life by the Father in victory over Satan, sin, and death. You believe that and you confess that and you will be saved. The answer is him because he's eternal, he suffered and he died and we need him. We need him. The question is, do we want him? I saw a quote this week is actually from Francis Chan. It was on Instagram and it says this. The irony is that while God doesn't need us but still wants us, we desperately need God but we don't really want him most of the time. Do we desperately want him as much as we need him? I want to end with another story. And I'm sorry, I'm probably taking way too much time, but I forgot my clock and I'm too blind to see the one on the back. So I just keep talking. <laughs> Somebody just has to stand up finally and say, Pastor, it's lunchtime. Eight years ago, Pastor Ron Van Acker, who's, what's that? Oh, okay. Eight years ago, Pastor Ron Van Acker, who is on staff at our, at our church, he used to be our lead. He's our exec pastor now. He made a trip to Thailand We've had a long relationship with Thailand. And while he was there, he met a group of pastors, 20 of them, who not long before that had been in prison because of their stand for Jesus. They had been in prison for 10 weeks. It would have been longer, but uh, a delegation from our mission agency in Abbotsford actually went to Thailand to negotiate their release. But they, these 20 pastors had been in jail in Thailand for 10 weeks in a cell that was too small for them to all sleep at one time. They were crammed in there so tight that they had to sleep in shifts. There was only room for a few to sleep on the floor and they would just rotate. It was so small that they couldn't stand up. While they were standing and the others were sleeping, they were, hunt they were bent over like this at uh, 90 degrees. <laughs> there was no washroom in this cell. So they designated a corner for that purpose. And every once in a while, a guard would come and open the door and take one pastor out, and he would say in front of all of them, now you need to deny Christ or we will take off a fingernail. Can you imagine that? Makes my palms a little bit sweaty 
thinking about that. Forget heights, forget spiders, forget airplanes. Imagine that. So Pastor Ron went to Thailand just after this group of pastors were released. And the first time he met them, he walked into a building. where these pastors were engaged in praise and worship of the Lord Jesus that they loved, even though it would cost them their life, but they were released miraculously. With their hands raised in worship and no fingernails on any of their hands. Do we want Jesus like that? The one who was, who is, and is to come, the one who died and who came to life. Will we, in the face of suffering and because of our relationship with Christ, be faithful like that? I pray that we would be a bold church, that others would find redemption as we have, having the hope of eternity in their hearts, ready to receive the crown of life. Let's pray. Lord, I don't uh, even know what to say as a result of uh, your word other than would you please anoint us with with power from your Holy Spirit to be faithful and to not be afraid, to speak for you, to live for you, and if necessary, to die for you. Thank you that you are the one who was and is and is to come. That you are the faithful one. That you died. And that you were raised to life so that we can have that crown of life. Thank you, Jesus. We ask for your grace. In your precious name, amen.